The Bible reading today is from Acts chapter 19, verse 1 to 20. While Paulus was in Corinth, Paul took the road through the interior and arrived at Ephesus. There he found some disciples and asked them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? They answered, No, we have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. So Paul asked, Then what baptism did you receive? John's baptism, they replied. Paul said, John's baptism was a baptism of repentance. He told the people to believe in the one coming after him, that is, in Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. When Paul placed his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they spoke in tongues and prophesied. There were about twelve men in all. Paul entered the synagogue and spoke boldly there for three months, arguing persuasively about the kingdom of God. But some of them became obstinate. They refused to believe and publicly maligned the way. So Paul left them. He took the disciples with him and had discussions daily in the lecture hall of Tyrannus. This went on for two years so that all the Jews and Greeks who lived in the province of Asia heard the word of the Lord. God did extraordinary miracles through Paul, so that even handkerchiefs and aprons that had touched him were taken to the sick, and their illnesses were cured, and the evil spirits left them. Some Jews who went around driving out evil spirits tried to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who were demon-possessed. They would say, In the name of Lord Jesus, over those in the name of the Jesus whom Paul preaches, I command you to come out. Seven sons of Sceva, a Jewish chief priest, were doing this. One day the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, and Paul I know about, but who are you? Then the man who had the evil spirit jumped on them and overpowered them all. He gave them such a beating that they ran out of the house naked and bleeding. When this became known to the Jews and Greeks living in Ephesus, they all were seized with fear, and the name of the Lord Jesus was held in high honour. Many of those who believed now came and openly confessed what they had done. A number who practised sorcery brought their scrolls together and burned them publicly. When they calculated the value of the scrolls, the total came to 50,000 drachmas. In this way, the word of the Lord spread widely and grew in power. This is the word of the Lord. Uh, thanks, Liam. Uh, please keep your Bibles open as we continue our series on Acts. Well, it was billed as the biggest fight in combat sports history, and it didn't disappoint. Over 4 million Americans paid to tune in for the fight, the second highest in combat sport history. They would share in a record $410 million. So what was the, all the hype about? Well, in one corner of the ring was Floyd Mayweather Jr., the undefeated 11-time world champion, with 49 wins, zero losses, and 26 knockouts. And in the other corner was Conor McGregor, a two-division mixed martial arts world champion, as well as the UFC lightweight champion of the world. And so here you have two very powerful combat sportsmen. And the question leading up to this event that everyone was asking was this, who will win 
the biggest fight in combat sports history. Who will be the most powerful man on earth? And in some sense, that's what happens in today's passage. Uh, so in one corner of the ring is Artemis, represented by the people of Ephesus. And in the other corner is Jesus, represented by his apostle Paul. And the question everyone's asking is, who's the most powerful God in the world? You, you see, after Paul's time in Corinth, which we looked at last week, he returns to Antioch, his home church, uh, before then going on his third and final mission trip. He goes to Ephesus, uh, where unlike his two other missionary journeys, he doesn't travel from city to city preaching the gospel and planting churches. He settles in this one city and has an extensive ministry in this one city called Ephesus. So, so, so what, what do we know about Ephesus? Well, Ephesus uh, was a, a big city at that time of about half a million people. It was famed as the guardian of the temple of Artemis, and now Artemis might not be familiar to you, might be more familiar with the uh, a goddess Diana, which is what the Romans preferred to call her. Uh, she was a virgin huntress and a fertility goddess. Her temple was four times the size of the Parthenon in Athens. It was 130 metres long, 70 metres high, 127 columns holding up a marble roof. It was so big and expansive that it took 120 years to build. It was adorned with beautiful paintings and stunning sculptures and regarded as one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. It was right up there, along with the pyramids of Egypt and the Hanging Garden of Babylon. You see, if Athens, which we looked at a couple of weeks ago, was the intellectual capital of the Roman Empire and the home of Aristotle's Lyceum, and Corinth, we saw last week, was the commercial capital of the Roman Empire, which commanded one of the most important trade routes in all of the empire. Then Ephesus, at this time in history, was the religious capital of the Greco-Roman world. So here we see that Paul has travelled to the philosophical, intellectual capital, the commercial capital, and now to the spiritual capital. It, Ephesus was like the Mecca for Muslims, Jerusalem for Jews, the Vatican City for Roman Catholics, the Anchor Wat to Buddhists. You see, in terms of superstition and magic, occult practices and religion, Ephesus was second to none. And, and so how will Paul do in the ring with the most religious? Well, let's have a look at the passage. And what we'll notice are three unusual events, three strange stories, three weird accounts, but they all have a common theme. Now the first is that we see Jesus sends the Holy Spirit through Paul's very own hands. So in verse 1, Paul arrives in Ephesus, he finds some disciples, and he works out that they're disciples of John the Baptist. Now these 12 men knew of Jesus and had heard of the prophecy of the Holy Spirit, but not that it had been fulfilled. They were absent from the crucifixion, they didn't know about the resurrection, and they hadn't even heard of Pentecost. And so Paul baptizes them. Verse 5. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. When Paul placed his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them. And they spoke in tongues and prophesied. Now this is strange, isn't it? Because you normally receive the Holy Spirit when you first believe in Jesus. But it was different for these 12 men because they were still living in the Old Testament era, which culminated with John the Baptist, 
who was the last of the Old Testament prophets and who they were disciples of. They weren't disciples of Jesus yet. And so Paul gives them a mini Pentecost experience. In some sense, Pentecost finally catches up to them. They were brought up to speed with the promised blessings. Now I'm sure you have lots of questions here about baptism, about the Holy Spirit, about speaking in tongues. And in a couple of weeks I'll preach on some of these topics and I'll talk a bit more about it. But for now, what I want you to notice is this. John the Baptist was a great man, an important man, the last of the Old Testament prophets. He was really, really important and significant in the timeline of history. But here now we see that Jesus eclipses even him. So that even when Paul places his hands on these 12 men, the disciples of John the Baptist, they received the Holy Spirit, something that they could never have gotten from John the Baptist. No one else in Ephesus, in fact, has the Spirit of God dwelling in them apart from the disciples of Jesus. Such is the power of Jesus demonstrated through his apostle Paul. Now, if you've been in the Christian circle for a while, receiving the Holy Spirit doesn't sound all that special, does it? Uh, but if you reflect on it, it's actually quite extraordinary that the Holy Spirit, God's own Spirit, the third person of the Godhead, a part of the Trinity, comes on you, lives in you when you first become a Christian. And in Ephesus, when Paul came across the disciples of John the Baptist, Jesus sends his spirit to them through Paul's very own hands. That's powerful stuff. Friends, do you know that if you have turned to Jesus, he lives and dwells in you, that the Holy Spirit is in you, that God dwells in you? That's extraordinary. That's powerful. No other religion promises you that and can ever offer you that. Uh, second, did you, uh, God did extraordinary miracles through Paul. Now, I've got um, a, a napkin, a serviette here that I got from a cafe. Now, I was wondering whether any of you would like to touch it or use it. You see, a, a, a napkin, a handkerchief is a, a, a cloth that you use to wipe your mouth after you eat. The fabric you take out of your pocket when you need to blow your nose, the reusable napkin that's full of your germs. Now, I wonder if you, any of you would like to take it home. Uh, you wouldn't, wouldn't you? Uh, even though I'm not sick, you wouldn't want to. At best, it's my private napkin. At worst, it's covered with my germs, which can be passed on to you. But look at what happens when someone touches Paul's handkerchief. Verse 11. God did extraordinary miracles through Paul so that even handkerchiefs and aprons that had touched him were taken to the sick and their illnesses were cured and evil spirits left them. So you can just imagine, isn't it? Paul's like, you know, he's gone to the local cafe, he's wiped his mouth with it, he's left it there for it to be thrown into the bin and someone comes and grabs it, puts it in their pocket, runs to the hospital, dabs everyone and they're all healed. How amazing, how extraordinary is that? But, but it's a very unusual situation. And you know, you see, if you touch my napkin, at worst, you might get COVID or the flu uh, or whatever illnesses I have. At best, you get some of my germs. But if you touch Paul's handkerchief and, and pass it on to anyone else, the opposite happens. If you had COVID and you were in the hospital and someone came with Paul's handkerchief and touched you with it, 
you just wouldn't feel better. You'd be completely healed of COVID. Your PCR test would come back negative immediately. You wouldn't have any hints of long COVID. If you had cancer and Paul touch you with his uh, uh, apron, or someone took his apron and touched you with it, you're not going to get chemo and all the side effects that comes with your, uh, 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 all that. You're, you're going to be completely healed. And so when Paul lays his hands on the disciples of John the Baptist, they receive the Holy Spirit. Such is the power of Jesus. And when anyone sick touches Paul's handkerchief or apron, they're immediately healed. If they're possessed with evil spirits, they're completely exercised. They're completely fine. Such is the power of Jesus. And then the third story we see here is about the seven sons of Sceva. It's a strange, another strange story about some Jews who went around wanting to drive out evil spirits. And they did this by invoking on the name of Jesus, verse 13. They would say, in the name of Jesus, whom Paul preaches, I command you to come out. So these sons, seven sons of Sceva aren't Christians, they're Jews, sons of the chief priests. So they're really important people. They, they will know their Torah back to front. But clearly they're not very devout and faithful Jews. And it just shows the influence of Ephesus even on the Jews. That they would be so superstitious. Because this was very common in Ephesus. And so they use Jesus' name as some sort of formula. Because they've seen it work with Paul. They've seen it work. And so they're wanting to copy him to drive out demons. But look at what happens to them, verse 15. One day the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know. That's interesting, isn't it? That the devil knows, evil spirits know who Jesus is. And I know Paul, and Paul I know about. But who are you? Verse 16. Then the man who had the evil spirit jumped on them and overpowered them all. He gave them such a beating that they ran out of the house naked and bleeding. That's a bit funny, isn't it? The one man who was demon-possessed ends up bashing up these seven sons and they run out naked and bleeding. You see, Jesus, oops, you see, Jesus isn't someone you can control. And Christianity isn't some sort of cult. And so when the seven sons of Sceva try to tap into the power of Jesus, it backfires. Getting bashed by a demon-possessed man and running away naked and bloody isn't a lot of fun. Such is the power of Jesus. For Paul can exercise such demons in the name of Jesus. He can overpower such power from even the devil himself. But no one else can, not even the sons of the chief priests. Now, if you've been following Paul's journey over the last few weeks, you'll realize that this passage is somewhat unusual. In most of the cities that Paul visits, there's hardly any mention of miracles. There's a few, but not a lot. There's, there's a much greater emphasis on his preaching and teaching. So when Paul was in Athens in, in Acts chapter 17, which we saw a, lot, a couple of weeks ago, uh, Athens being the birthplace of Socrates, the home of Plato's Academy, Aristotle's Lyceum, it, he wasn't confronted by the spiritual, but the, by the intellect. The philosophical. And so Luke records part of Paul's sermon to the Areopagus and shows us from Paul's sermon how he engages these intellects with reason and logic, so much so 
that they even become Christians. Such as Dionysius, who was a member of the Areopagus. He becomes a Christian because Paul is able to articulate the gospel logically, with reason, and faithfully. No miracles are mentioned. I, 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 I don't think any miracles are mentioned because the power of the gospel is in the word of God, in the proclamation of the gospel with sound and logical argument. And then we get to last week's sermon, last week's passage, Paul's mission trip to Corinth in Acts chapter 18. There, the city, is he's confronted by the materialists, the rich and the wealthy, by those who live for the pleasures of this life in one of the most immoral cities in the world. Remember, to Corinthianize, they even change the word, they verbalize the city's name to describe the immoral activities that happen by night. And so Luke tells us that Paul's priorities were the complete opposite. He goes to the city with a very light coin bag. He ends up working as a tent maker to make ends meet so that he might be able to preach the gospel free of charge. Luke describes to us Paul's life in a materialistic world, that his priorities is the priority of the gospel and not the priority of living for the today and the now. He lives for the glory to come and not for the pleasures of this world. And the contrast between Paul's life and the life of the Corinthians couldn't be more stark. And so when he preaches from that basis, the word of God doesn't come back empty. And as far as I know, I don't think miracles are mentioned at all. It's, it's not the emphasis of his time in Athens or Corinth. For such is the power of Jesus through the proclamation of the gospel and the life of his apostle. And so then when we get to today's passage, Ephesians, uh, when he's in Ephesus, in Acts chapter 19, it's the most superstitious and religious city in the empire. It's therefore not surprising that Luke then tells us about the miracles, how that becomes the forefront of his ministry, how powerfully Jesus works through Paul in the supernatural. In fact, Jesus empowers Paul to perform such miracles and preach so powerfully, and so recognize this. Verse 8 to 10, we see that Paul does preach. People aren't converted just because of miracles. People are converted because of the power of the word of God going out. And the city is filled with fear. Verse 17, when this became known to the Jews and Greeks living in Ephesus, they were all seized with fear, and the name of the Lord Jesus was held in high honor. You see, the fear that the people felt when they saw and heard the power of Jesus through his apostle led them to repentance. Because the Ephesians saw Jesus and Artemis battle out in the ring, as it were, and it was very clear that Artemis was knocked out even in round one. Such is the power of Jesus. Verse 18, many of those who believed now came and openly confessed what they had done. A number who had practiced sorcery brought their scrolls together and burned them publicly. When they calculated the value of the scrolls, the total came to 50,000 drachmas. Now, 50,000 drachmas doesn't mean anything to us, but converted to today is about $4 million. That's a lot of drachmas. And a lot of magic spells going up in smoke. Now, if you were a first-century Ephesian, it, it would have been—it wouldn't have been easy, right, 
if you had some scrolls worth hundreds or thousands of dollars to throw it into the fire. But that's what it looks like to repent. When you see and feel and know the fear of God, that is what it looks like to repent. To confess your sins, to put to death the sin. Even if it seems costly, even if it doesn't seem to make sense. This is what it looks like to repent, to turn to Jesus, to turn from idolatry and pagan worship, from superstition and the occult, to devote yourself to the Lord Jesus. A couple of days ago I read in the paper about a couple who made some huge sacrifices. Danny gave up her secure job in retail. Uh, she moved to the other side of Melbourne uh, for 10 months to train to be a police officer. She lived in a share house, avoided replacing broken furniture, and even po postponed her wedding for two years, just about to save a 5% deposit for a house in Bacchus Marsh. But for Danny and her partner Chris, they say it was all worth it. All those sacrifices, every little bit of it was worth it because they now have a place to call home. And that makes sense, doesn't it? Danny and Chris made a lot of sacrifices for a short time so that they could buy a home. I'm sure down the track, years later, they wouldn't even think of that time as much of a sacrifice as they enjoy their family home, a place where they may be able to raise their children. They will see that time of sacrifice as a wise decision, a necessary decision to receive an important and great outcome. And in a similar way, what the Ephesians did in burning $4 million worth of scrolls might seem to us a huge sacrifice. But I doubt that they'd be thinking that it was much of a sacrifice when they're in glory and enjoying the wedding feast of the Lamb. You see, friends, turning from our idols might be hard. And sometimes it might even feel like it's a huge sacrifice. But the reality is, it's nothing compared to the glory that's to come. And so when a Buddhist becomes a Christian and goes through his home and throws out all the idols, all the incense, and everything that they've got, and he throws it all out, worth hundreds or thousands of dollars, we cheer them on. We say, good on you. That's what it looks like to repent. When a Muslim becomes a Christian and risks the death penalty, and being disowned by his family or her family, we cheer them on. It's a sacrifice, sure, but it's the right thing to do. That's what repentance looks like. Well, when someone becomes a Christian and gives up the desires of their flesh to live a holy and blameless life, we cheer them on. We cheer them on. And when we hear testimonies of people becoming Christians, we become so encouraged, don't we? Because it reminds us afresh that any sacrifice we make, even if it means burning $4 million worth of magic scrolls, is nothing compared to the eternal life that's to come. And the glory will bathe with our King of kings and Lord of lords. And that's what happens in Ephesus. The public confession, the public repentance of these people, the sacrifice that they make, 
lead to the evangelization of the whole province. Verse 20. In this way, the word of the Lord spread widely and grew in power. And so, friends, we need to ask ourselves, don't we, have we actually really turned from our idols? From our superstition? Have we burned the scrolls in our lives that keeps us from obeying Jesus? Have we done these things like the Ephesians have done, so that we might fully devote ourselves to our Lord, so that we might see the word of God spread widely through us? In 2017, Mayweather stepped into the ring with McGregor. And after 10 rounds of intense fighting, the most powerful person in the world was crowned. McGregor might be one of MMA's greatest fighters the sport has ever seen, but he was no match for McGregor, uh, for, for Mayweather. Mayweather is regarded as one of the best fighters of his generation, and the predictions were spot on. Mayweather came out victorious, winning the fight in the 10th round with a technical knockout. He retires with 50 wins and zero losses. Now some say that the entire fight was nothing more than money. After all, Mayweather went home with $280 million. But because McGregor lost the fight, he got a lot less, only $130 million. But as we've seen in today's passage, when Paul entered the ring in the so-called most spiritually powerful city in the world, it wasn't about fame or fortune, but about Jesus saving a people for himself. He demonstrated his power through his apostle beyond all reasonable doubt that he's the one and only true God, knocking Artemis out of the ring. And in some sense, Ephesus being Paul's final city, of mission work marks a fitting climax to his ministry where he goes to the city that is the most religious at that time. For the greatest fight we have on our hands isn't one with hands and feet but with the principalities of this world. It's therefore not surprising that when Paul wrote his letter years later to the church of Ephesus in his final chapter to them, he says to them in, in Ephesians chapter 2 verse 10, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. And when Paul makes it explicit that the work of the gospel and the life of the Christian is a spiritual battle and not a physical battle, it's important that we realize that Paul doesn't then go on to say to them, Ephesians, go and perform miracles. Expect dirty handkerchiefs to do extraordinary healing. He doesn't say that. But instead, in Ephesians, just as he called the Christians in Ephesus 2,000 years ago, so he calls us today to stand firm by putting on the full armor of God. And that means... Not go and do miracles, but hold steadfast to the truth of the word of God, living out the life of faith and righteousness. And so let me close with these encouraging 
words of Paul, these words of exhortation to us today. Stand firm then with the belt of truth buckled around your waist, with the breastplate of righteousness in place, and with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. In addition to all this, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. Amen.